Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome to this new episode of the Linux and Open Source News Podcast where I go deeper into what happened in the Linux and Open Source world. At least deeper than the Linux and Open Source News videos that I make on my YouTube channel. So this week, there's a new proposed law that would basically make open source software unusable in the EU because developers would become liable for the security of their own product, something that open source licenses clearly state isn't the case. Open source software has always been provided without warranty, and that's kind of the point. Now we also have an alpha for GNOME 44, which looks like a small release, all things considered, with nothing major in it, and we have benchmarks showing how far Firefox has fallen compared to GNOME, much to my dismay. But we also have Google's Fuchsia OS being targeted by their recent job cuts and probably being on the chopping block. And we have a new cool distro called BlendOS, plus a lot of other cool things. Oh, and before we begin, quick reminder that this show is offered without ads or without sponsors, and it relies on user donations only. So if you like it and you're able to, you can check out the Patreon link in the description to help me keep this thing going. It's always really appreciated, and you'll also get some nice bonuses as well. And as always, all the links that I used for creating this podcast, all the articles that I read, are in the show notes so you can dig deeper if you want. There are time codes for each topic and all the links to my various social accounts are also in there. So, let's get started. So, I regularly praise the European Union for trying to curb the privacy abuses of various big tech companies. They've basically been the privacy champion recently by really hitting those companies with fines, which might seem small, but they're still a mark that they did something wrong, and they're forcing them to comply to various regulations. So user privacy in the EU has improved greatly, with some hiccups, with GDPR, some things have really become a little bit worse with all those cookie notifications and stuff like that, but it's growing pains, basically. And... Now, they probably have a big, big mistake in the works, at least in my opinion, in terms of new laws. They have something called the Cyber Resiliency Act, or CRA, and it's a new legal framework that aims to improve software security. They would basically just create a European Commission stamp that they could apply onto software products. And this stamp would have four major goals. The first one is to improve digital security throughout the whole life cycle of the product. So as long as the product is maintained, it needs to stay secure. It would also aim to offer a coherent cybersecurity framework so apps can be judged by the same criteria. It would improve transparency of that digital security, so probably with some kind of label indicating if this piece of software is judged secure or not. And so it would enable customers to use software more securely by picking software that is stamped as secure. Now, so far, so good. It's not a bad idea. But the main issue is that this legal framework might mean that open source software would not be usable by companies because they would never get that stamp. Being compliant with these rules would mean an extra cost for developers to basically implement all the security practices and submit to a review. And open source software already has problems being funded. So they would never have the workforce or the time or the resources to submit to that process. And so they would be excluded from decision processes inside of companies. 
companies, instead of using open source software, would see that it's not just as secure, that would lower the security rating of their own products, and so they would decide to not use open source software. And this is a big problem, because FOSS is by nature provided as is. Most open source licenses stipulate very clearly that the software is provided without warranty and without liability for its authors. And these new proposed laws would mean that open source developers would in fact become liable for their product security when it's being used. So it's a big problem. You want to create some open source software for companies to use, to modify, to redistribute, and you're basically letting all that security aspect, that maintenance and that review process being handled by the companies that implement your software themselves. You as the open source developer provide something as is that to the best of your knowledge works well and is secure, but if it's not, it's not your fault. The company that implements it has to do their own research and has to secure it or contract security and maintenance from another firm. With this new stamp of approval, companies would basically not be able to do that. And so open source developers would have to be responsible for the entire security and maintenance of their product. And there's a second issue. This Cyber Resiliency Act would restrict the use of unfinished software, which is a very, very weird definition because all software is by definition unfinished. It would restrict use of unfinished software for testing purposes only. So it would mean you could never integrate any beta or version not 1.0, for, for, for example. You could not include any of this in your own software either. Now, of course, the Open Source Initiative has submitted feedback to try and make the European Commission reconsider their laws for open source software. They, they wanted to give an exception for open source software so it can keep functioning as it's currently working. Because if no exception is set, it would mean companies would not be able to use stuff like NPM or other open source software repos, which would basically put a stop to all software development in the EU if companies want to keep that stamp of being secure, which they will want to because if they don't, consumers will know that they are not conforming to these regulations and will probably try and use something else, something proprietary, which is a big, big problem because most companies implement some kind of open source library somewhere in their website or in their product. It's just general practices that basically everyone does. So yeah, it's a big issue. And again, it's going to be a matter of wording because what they're saying is a digital product. They have made no specific exception for any type of software. It could be rewritten. It's a proposed law, so no need to panic just yet, but it's still a concerning development. And of course, it doesn't mean that free and open source software should not work on security at all. Of course, when possible, open source developers should focus on making sure that their stuff is secure and maintained, even if it's horrible work to do, even if it's annoying. You, you provide something as is, but you still want to provide something that is not a riddled with security holes and vulnerabilities. But open source software cannot conform to such rigorous security checks. It's the companies that implement it that should be sub subjected to these checks, not the, the software itself, because that's the very nature of open source development. It's made by volunteers, and volunteers just might not want to focus on fixing vulnerabilities or, or maybe don't have the time or the funding to do so. It's the companies that implement their software that should do that work. 
And yeah, it's going to be a huge burden if the law is passed as is. Now, something lighter, the GNOME 44 Alpha. It's now out for testing and it brings a bunch of changes, but nothing really that big or major. Now, first we have the GNOME web browser finally being ported to GTK4, like two releases after Libadvita came out or something. But now it's finally supporting GTK4 with a latest version of WebKit, so it should be faster, more secure, uh, more responsive. It has better tab handling, better animations. It's a better browser all around that no one will still use, probably. But the, the big change, the major big change in GTK4, in GNOME 44, sorry, is the GTK file picker. It finally supports a grid view with thumbnails. So that old, decade-old meme can just die now. GNOME has, or will have, thumbnails in the file picker. Finally, <laughs> finally. And Nautilus also handles 64 pixel icon sizes in the grid view, so you can zoom a little bit more or a little bit less, depending on where your zoom level was, because I think it jumped from 32 to 128 immediately, which meant your icons were either too small or too big. So now there should be something in the middle that's more usable for everyone. Another cool change, but minor, is the Bluetooth quick setting. Uh, previously, you had to click it to enable it or click it to disable it, but there was no way to expand it to see the various devices that are connected, unpair or disconnect, or pair and connect something. So now it will be fixed. Uh, you won't need an extension to do that. It will be there by default, which is always better. Uh, you will also be able to disable settings uh, panels in the search in the activities overview, which is yeah, I mean, why not? And some panels have been redesigned entirely in the settings uh, to be more legible and more usable. But again, that's pretty minor. They didn't gain features. They were just redesigned. You'll also be able to share Wi-Fi passwords with a QR code a lot more easily. Uh, you get improvements for mobile devices as well. Stuff is more responsive and works well. And you can also set a default calls or default SMS application for mobile phones, which, again, will concern very little people, probably. <laughs> I don't think there's that many uh, GNOME mobile users. But hey, still nice to have. Uh, the Thunderbolt panel in the settings will also only appear if you have Thunderbolt capabilities in your device, something that should have been the default like as soon as they introduced the Thunderbolt panel. And the GNOME software store now better supports RPM OS 3, uh, especially in terms of install progress. So when you update something like Fedora Silver Blue, you'll get a more legible update progress instead of having something that you never really knew where it was at, if it was updating correctly or not. And you'll also be able to hide non-open source applications in GNOME software, which is cool if you want to keep your system fast and don't want to be exposed to any proprietary app. And you'll also be able to automatically remove Flatpak runtimes that are unused. Uh, that's something that's been a problem with Flatpak. You install a bunch of runtimes, which generally they're reused between apps, like the first Flatpak app you install for, for GNOME, for example, will take a lot of space, but the other apps that you install after that will reuse generally that runtime. The problem starts showing up when you start installing apps from KDE, apps from GNOME, apps from other toolkits, or older apps that use older versions of the platforms, and then you start piling up multiple runtimes, and when the app is updated to a newer runtime, the old one was still on your hard drive taking up space, sometimes like 200, 500 megs, so now you'll be able to remove them automatically, which is pretty nice. 
And of course, there will be the usual app updates like uh, GNOME Maps, being able to pull Wikipedia thumbnails and article excerpts uh, to better illustrate various locations. Uh, there's a new service that will let you see if sandboxed apps are running in the background, even if they have no visible uh, window or user interface. And you also get the all-important shortcuts portal, which means that applications on Wayland, even when they're not focused, will be able to use keyboard shortcuts, something that is very useful, for example, for OBS streaming. So that's a great improvement, but of course, applications have to be updated to support that portal. GNOME will just provide the default support, but apps still need to plug into that support as well. So it doesn't look like a big update, uh, but developers still have until uh, mid or end of March, I think, to finalize all of this and maybe implement other changes. Uh, there's notably the removal of the uh, application name menu in the top bar, which serves basically no purpose these days. And GNOME developers are planning to maybe remove it, but it's not been confirmed as definitively there for GNOME 44. So they have time to do that. And yeah, so now if you want to test GNOME 44, if your distro offers packages, well, you can probably try it out right now, or there probably are some images that you can test in the VM as well. And the next piece of news will be a problem for me because I'm a Firefox user. And Foronix just performed a series of benchmarks on Linux to compare Firefox to Chrome. And Firefox does not come out looking good out of these benchmarks because basically in every single of these benchmarks, performed on the same system, Chrome is faster by a big, big margin. So whether it's just rendering web pages or the JavaScript engine, Chrome outperforms Firefox sometimes by up to 67%. And the only spaces where Firefox is actually better is for WebAssembly, which is a cool technology, but not used all that much right now. And in the HTML5 canvas test, uh, so yeah, it, it hurts. Uh, it basically means that using Firefox is a big performance drop. And that's something that I had noticed when doing my various Linux web browser comparisons, but I wasn't expecting that big of a gap now. So it means that Chrome has improved a lot in about a year since I last did a video about Linux browsers and Firefox just hasn't, which is a big problem. I will still keep using Firefox because in my opinion, it's a crucial part of the open web. Uh, Google has a very firm grip on the Chromium project and on the Blink engine. It might be open source, but all the decisions on what goes in or not are made by Google engineers, which means that if there's something they don't like, they're going to not implement it. And since that engine has a basic monopoly on web rendering, it also means that basically no one can use that feature if Google decides that they don't want it. That's something that we're seeing right now with Manifest V3, which is a, a new version of that extension protocol that will severely limit ad blockers and tracker blockers on Chrome uh, because Google decided they don't want these things to have capabilities. They wrapped it all in a nice, it's more secure speech, but in the end, the end result is that using Chrome means that your web, uh, your, your tracker blocker and your ad blocker will just work less well than they do on Firefox and other browsers. So Firefox is, for me at least, a very, very important part of the web and I will stick to it. But I still wish that Mozilla would focus on improving performance instead of adding like weird themes and doodads and, and home pages that no one cares about. Your browser is there to render web pages and that should be the focus. And please Mozilla reconsider working on the engine of your browser, please. 
Now, talking about Google, uh, you might have seen that they laid off 12,000 people this week, which is like enormous, but apparently not enough for certain investors. Some called for 30,000 people to be fired, uh, but they decided for 12,000, which I guess is not that bad by comparison. Uh, don't really know why they're doing that, probably to please investors. But the important thing is that these layoffs impacted Fuchsia a lot. Uh, 16% of the workforce on that new operating system well, new, relatively new operating system have been laid off. And Fuchsia is the new operating system for Google. It's a thing that's been touted as a replacement for Android, for, for the Linux kernel and the various tools on top of that that make the basis for Android. It's been touted as a replacement for Linux on Chrome OS. Uh, they started using it in Internet of Things devices, like some Nest hubs and Nest devices. So they're, they're investing on that thing. And Google seems to think that it's not the future for them. Because if it was, they probably would not have fired that many people. They have a team of 400 people and they fired 16% of it, which compared to other areas of the companies is like 10 times as much. So they must think that this OS might not be their future. And it's interesting because in 2022, uh, they already had lost their engineering director for Fuchsia. And that guy said at the time, uh, they were they were asked, uh, where do you see Fuchsia in 10 years? And basically they answered that, well, in 10 years, there's a small chance that everything that's in Fuchsia will be just implemented in the Linux kernel and that in 10 years, people will be trying to figure out how to use Fuchsia. So basically he was very not confident that Fuchsia was the future of anything. And so it kind of looks like with these layoffs, Google is taking a step back on that OS and maybe rethinking their strategy. And maybe Fuchsia will end up on the chopping block and be another addition to the Google graveyard. Uh, it looks like they're not going to be replacing the Linux kernel anytime soon with it, which would have been in their best interest because obviously when you control the whole kernel and the whole OS on top of it, you have way more freedom to do whatever you want, whether if Google wants to implement something weird in the Linux kernel, it's not going to be accepted and they're going to have to apply some weird workarounds to actually lend it uh, in their own products. Now, some kind of cool news. Uh, Ubuntu made their Ubuntu Pro subscription available to everyone now. Uh, it's been in beta since October, and it's a pretty cool service. Uh, it gives you 10 years of support for your LTS distro. It gives you live patching for the kernel, which means you can apply patches to your kernel without rebooting, so no downtime on your servers or devices. Uh, they will give you patches for critical, high, and medium security vulnerabilities, with critical patches being delivered in less than 24 hours. And they will also provide support themselves for 2300 open source Debian packages in the Ubuntu main repo for 10 years. And they will also support 23,000 packages from the universe repo for 10 years as well. So it's like an all-in-one offer to ensure that your server or desktop is always up to date whatever the app you use and even if you don't want to move to the latest releases. And not only is it a paid product for companies, but it's also free for individuals on up to five computers, which means that your home servers, your, your desktop or laptop can make use of that. If you don't want to jump to the latest and greatest release of Ubuntu, if you're fine on your LTS, you want stability, you can subscribe to that thing for free. All you need to do is create an Ubuntu One account and then type a few command lines to enroll your device into the program and you're good to go. You'll get the patches and the security updates all on your own, nothing to do apart from that. It's really cool. 
I think it's a great move from Ubuntu and Canonical. It's going to give Ubuntu an edge compared to other distributions for people who need patches and security and want to ensure that their stuff is well protected. It's really cool. And I will probably myself make use of it on my next cloud server because it runs Ubuntu and it's it's on a 20.04 LTS, I think. I don't think I upgraded it to 22.04. And so, yeah, using Ubuntu Pro means that I would get all the patches without having to reboot my server, even though downtime on my own next cloud server that I'm the only one to access is not really a big issue. Now, I don't generally talk much about new Linux distros because there are so many coming out all the time and a lot of them are just Ubuntu clones with a new theme and a few different apps. But this one uh, caught my attention. It's called BlendOS and it's basically aiming to be the last distro that you will ever use even if you're a distro hopper and you can't decide between bleeding edge and stable stuff. So... At its core, BlendOS is Arch Linux with GNOME on Wayland, although you can install any other desktop environment that's in Arch repos or any window manager if you prefer. But it also offers the ability to install Ubuntu dev packages and Fedora RPM packages. And they're both handled in a distrobox podman container. So you can install libraries and applications without messing up your dependencies on your system. Your base desktop, your base system, will be Arch Linux, so you get all the latest and greatest updates to desktop environments, window managers, applications, and everything. You get access to the AUR, it's basically Arch, but then you can also have access to a stable desktop environment or a stable development environment uh, from Ubuntu or from Fedora. All you have to do is install apt or DNF, uh, or both, to make use of it. And each time you use these package managers, instead of using Pac-Man on Arch, for example, you use, for example, sudo apt install something, it's going to automatically create a container for Ubuntu and install everything in a container. So your dependencies aren't mixing and matching and you're not breaking anything. And that's pretty cool. And they also have their own package manager called Blend, which will allow you to update all the stuff in Arch and in apt and in DNF in a single command line, which means that you don't have that added burden of maintenance to always check if your containers need to be updated. The Blend Package Manager will do that for you. So it's a pretty cool idea. Uh, I mean, it kind of serves the same purpose as an immutable file system, which this distro can also have if you want. You can enable an immutable file system, so you cannot write anything to the Arch system itself, but you have those containers to install everything. So yeah, it's, it's basically Fedora Silverblue plus the toolbox system, but using Arch. It's, it's pretty cool. I think it's a good idea. So I might test it out. I don't regularly test distributions on my YouTube channel uh, because there's no good format to do that without being really boring. But if I find that at some point, I will definitely take a look at it because it looks very interesting. Okay, let's move on to the desktop environment. So in Gnome land this week, we have a bunch of app updates as every week. So Tengram, uh, which is a sort of web browser that lets you pin a bunch of web apps in a single window. It's basically just a web browser, but you've got vertical tabs for all your web apps that you use. So you can separate them from your main web browser. It's really kind of useful, especially if your web browser restores the windows that you opened previously. You can end up with a mess of, of tens of apps opened. If you use, for example, like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or a bunch of communication services, you can just leave them open in 10 gram and then use your, your Firefox or Chrome browser to navigate uh, to anything else. 
which is, it's, it's just a nicer way to organize yourself. So this thing uh, got ported to GTK4 and LibertVita. It has an adaptive UI for mobile, and it has way better web performance, probably due to the fact that it updated to GTK4, so it got access to a newer WebKit GTK version, so better performance and probably more secure as well. And it also supports uh, your system's dark or light theme. You don't have to enable dark mode inside of it. It will just adapt automatically uh, compared to what you're using on your system. Denaro, the personal finance manager, which was formerly known as Money, uh, called Money, uh, has a new release out with a bunch of new features. You can now attach an image of a receipt to any transaction that you enter. Uh, you can add repeat transactions, uh, including bi-weekly transactions. You can export your account as a PDF. You can sort your transactions by ID or date, and it will also perform better. It's also available on macOS and Windows, and the file formats are compatible between platforms, so that's something you could use on any OS. That's pretty cool. You also get an update to Bottles, uh, that fantastic container manager for wine prefixes, which is really cool to run Windows applications on Linux or even Windows games. Uh, so they greatly optimized the first startup of the app by downloading necessary components way faster than before. Uh, they added game scope improvements for running bottles on the Steam Deck with better performance. They now correctly support NV API if you use NVIDIA graphics. There are tons of bug fixes and they enabled VKD3D by default on all gaming bottles. So you should get way better performance because you're actually using Vulkan. And so instead of the default wine acceleration, which is way worse than, uh, than VKD3D basically. So yeah, it's a wonderful app. You also get a new version of the extension called Weather O'Clock, which is a very small extension that lets you display the current weather uh, on top uh, of the GNOME top bar next to the clock. It's very useful if you don't have windows and you cannot check the weather by yourself by turning your head. And on the KDE side, there are a bit less stuff happening because they're currently working on finishing up Plasma 5.27, which will release in about two weeks, but they still added a bunch of stuff. Uh, first, wallpaper creators now have the ability to define a specific accent color for their wallpapers. So if you use the define accent color based on wallpaper feature of KDE, then it will pick the accent color that the wallpaper creator has made instead of one that is automatically generated. And that could turn always turn out to be like some kind of gray or brown because it's, it's averaging the color values and so it always end up being something quite muddy. So now you can have something nicer if the wallpaper creator defined it. It's really cool. Uh, you also have do not disturb mode, which can now be triggered using the command line, which means you can write scripts that automatically do that for you. Uh, and Kwin will now try to force the smoothest animations by default. So you should get better performance on Intel integrated GPUs because before it was always on, uh, I think it was always on the absolute smoothest uh, uh, animation speed and animation, well, smoothness. Uh, you could change that manually, but that meant that on lower powered computers, you got middling performance because it was trying to do too many operations at once and it just was taxing the GPU for no reason. So now it's automatically going to pick one that works well, which means better battery life and better performance. That's cool. Uh, the Flatpak permissions pages just got a very, very tiny update. They removed the borders around the various frames in that, in that panel, so it looks a little bit more modern, but that's about it. And there were 118 bug fixes in total this week, which is, again, quite huge. Uh, KD developers do love fixing their bugs every week. It's about 100 bugs fixed. Pretty nice. But the more important thing 
is that now the KDE frameworks have been branched from KDE 5 to KDE 6, which means that the new development release of KDE Plasma, Plasma 6, is now open for contributions and developments. Developers can now target that new version of the frameworks, which is going to be a great help to start porting the various applications or updating the various applications uh, to the KDE frameworks the next generation, the next version of it. It's really nice. So they're basically shaping things up to let people start working on Plasma 6, which will be the next version, because 5.27 is going to be the last in the KDE 5 series. Uh, they probably will not release KDE Plasma 6 four months exactly after 5.27. I think that's too ambitious. But yeah, whatever, however time they take, they will still give Plasma 6 after 5.27. And it has a bunch of cool features in their roadmap. They might not all land in the first release of Plasma 6, but in the end, it will definitely move the desktop forward a lot. Now, speaking of frameworks, uh, Google presented updates to Flutter, which is their cross-platform toolkit to develop applications. It supports Windows, macOS, Linux, Android, iOS, and Ubuntu decided to use that thing themselves uh, to develop their various applications, like their new installer, for example, is using Flutter. So the big changes that Google announced uh, are the ability to use Material U widgets. They added a lot more Material U looking lookalike widgets because they're not exactly Material U because they're not Android widgets, they're Flutter widgets, but they look like Material U widgets. And that's either a good thing if you like Material U or if you're like me, it's horrible because that UI design system is just plain bad, in my opinion. It has terrible contrast between colors, way too much padding, I do not like it, but yeah, that's just my opinion. Now, since you can apply a theme to Flutter apps like Ubuntu did, they theme all the widgets to look like um, Yaru, uh, the Yaru theme, it's not really a big deal on Linux. There's also support for menus now in Flutter, so you can add a good old menu bar, and that menu bar will also support the global menu in macOS, although we don't know if it will also support the global menu on Linux, like what KDE implements, for example. So, yeah, we don't know that yet. I hope it does, that would be cool, but yeah, we'll see. Now, they also improved the rendering engine, the, the thing that draws the widgets and the applications on screen, and they basically improved it a lot for iOS, which means that now Flutter should really be usable for iOS apps, which means that Flutter is suitable for any platform. And they also work to help Flutter apps integrate better uh, with various platforms, especially with native languages, like you can now integrate Swift and Objective-C code for iOS, or you can integrate Kotlin code on Android without going through weird workarounds, which will probably help developers make better applications. Now, there is nothing Linux-specific that they announced, unfortunately, but it's still an important thing, because that cross-platform toolkit, it's not the only one, it's not the first one, but it's backed by Google, which is a very big company. Uh, as far as I know, it's also open source, which is cool, and it means that application developers that build apps for Android and iOS will also be able to just release them on Linux very easily, or on Windows, or on macOS. It's one less barrier to port applications to Linux. And sure, GTK and, and Qt are cross-platform as well, and people could use them to develop apps and port them to Linux. But now they have something that is backed by Google, which is big, and maybe they will prefer using that and see that there is basically no problem porting their apps to Linux now, because it's just a basically a web-based framework, so it shouldn't be too hard to have versions that work everywhere. 
So I guess we'll have to follow that. For now, it hasn't really materialized into many apps being ported to Linux. Uh, that was the main uh, thing that Ubuntu pushed when they said they would support Flutter and they would help develop Flutter. They said it would help cross-platform apps. For now, we haven't seen any of that materialize, but who knows? Maybe now that it's better, or at least maybe now that they've announced some better features, it will happen. Okay, another kind of big topic uh, to, to almost finish this podcast. There's just the gaming news after that. Uh, there seems to be a Supreme Court ruling in the US in the works that would have major impacts on big tech companies. I'm putting this at the end of the podcast because, well, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on anything yet, so we don't know, so I don't want to alarm anyone too fast. But it looks like there's a lawsuit from family members of a victim of the ISIS attacks in Paris in 2015. And they allege that tech companies' algorithms, by displaying terrorist content in feeds and search engines through their various algorithms or through user-generated content, basically acted as recommendations for terrorist content to people. And so they're saying that under the US anti-terrorist laws, the companies that displayed this content should be liable for what they displayed to users. Whether they curated it through an algorithm, whether users just posted it on their platforms, it doesn't matter. It's basically the same thing that's happening in India right now. They have the same kind of legal battle around this kind of stuff. And so the Supreme Court is examining this case to try and see if, yes, companies are completely responsible for anything that's published on their platforms or not. And it's a very complex issue because if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiff, if they say that, yes, tech companies are liable for everything that's posted, the algorithm should not display anything of the sort, it counts as a recommendation, and so the company endorses what is published, then all those companies would be in big trouble. They would either have to vet everything that is posted on their platforms to ensure that nothing is infringing on any law anywhere in the world, because if it rules in, if, it, if they rule like that in the US, there's no reason why other countries would not follow suit. So to avoid being liable for that content, they would have to make sure that no piece of content, not a single one, would pass in their algorithm or be visible by anybody if it infringes on any single law anywhere. Or they would just have to completely stop curating anything. So they could say, you know what? We don't check anything. We don't look at all that content. It's just published there. We don't endorse it. We're just offering a way for people to publish their stuff, but that's it. And that would be even worse because it would mean a lot more illegal, terrible, horrendous stuff that would just be visible by everybody, like, like child pornography, terrorist content, and stuff like that. There's no winning in this situation, basically. There's no winning. It's impossible for a company like YouTube or Google or even Reddit to monitor every single post that is made by anyone and make sure that it's not infringing any law anywhere. Right now, the mechanism is the companies try and adapt the content, try and remove stuff that they feel is illegal, and then countries can say, hey, you know what? This should not be here. This infringes on laws in our country. And so then, for example, YouTube will moderate that video, remove it, demonetize it, or just hide it completely, shadow ban it, whatever. That's how it works currently. And that's not a perfect system, but it also means that people have freedom to post whatever they want and then face the consequences of that by their content being removed if it infringes on anything. 
But if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiff, that means that companies will have to monitor every single piece of user-generated content to ensure that there's no problem, because if they don't, they would be liable to be sued by anybody saying, I saw this thing, it's illegal, it's terrible, I'm attacking you. And that means that these companies would just basically stop curating anything or just stop accepting user-generated content of any sort, which would basically mean that they're closing shop. Something that's very unlikely to happen. It's a big problem. And so obviously big tech companies are rushing to try and convince the Supreme Court to not rule in that sense because it will mean their whole business models could completely collapse. But it will also mean a lot less free speech on the internet uh, because, well, any country could decide that, hey, you know what, since they are liable to be sued for every type of content we don't like, here is a list of what we absolutely don't want to see and boom. All, just like that, you have censored a major part of the internet. It's tricky. At least, at least that will happen in the US. We don't know if other countries would follow suit either, but it's very, very likely. And so it's a very difficult paradox, because, of course, these platforms should absolutely filter some stuff. There are some things that no one should be exposed to on the internet, obviously. But also... Is a company responsible for what they display, even with an algorithm? An algorithm is a machine. It's been developed by humans. It has inherent biases, but also it's a machine. It's making split-second decisions that no human could make to try and push stuff or hide stuff. Is that algorithm a liability for the company that developed it? And if they decide that, yes, it's the case, this would have enormous consequences. And I honestly do not know where I stand on this. I would love a little bit less horrible terrorist or child pornographic content on the internet, but also I don't want a country to be able to moderate preemptively what a company is able to display or not, or companies censoring themselves because they're afraid of being sued. I, I don't think that would be a very good look for the open internet as we know it. But okay, let's finish the podcast with some lighter news, uh, gaming news. So first, uh, Electronic Arts had replaced their Origin launcher for a bunch of games by their EA app, which notoriously doesn't work that well on Linux. And so a lot of their games just stopped working or exhibited a lot of issues on Linux and the Steam Deck, which led Valve to revise their playable or verified status into something worse. Now, fortunately, it looks like it's being fixed. Uh, Valve pushed out a fix in Proton to handle that, and they are now re-reviewing a bunch of titles to mark them as playable, uh, such as Battlefield 1, Battlefield 4 and 5, Jedi Fallen Order, The Sims 4, Titanfall 2, A Way Out, uh, It Takes Two, the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, um, Mass Effect Andromeda as well, a lot more games, I think Unravel 2 as well, Need for Speed. So yeah, it's, it's solving itself, progressively. Of course, it shows that those stupid launchers should not be bricked or linked to one another. If I'm buying a game on Steam, I don't want to have to open the EA app for my game. I already have a launcher. It's called Steam. Uh, so maybe don't make me open that EA app every time I launch an EA game on Steam because I already use Steam to launch it. Thank you, EA. Now, there's a weird thing that happened as well, uh, which is an unintended Steam Deck exclusive on Linux. Uh, the developers of the game Forspoken implemented something in their code that meant that their game would run on Linux, but only on the Steam Deck. Any other Linux computer would just fail to run the game. It, it would fail to start. 
Uh, so people had to spoof using a Steam Deck with a command line option to be able to play the title. Now fortunately Valve is now forcing that spoofing for the game server-side, so every time you launch the game on Steam, Steam will automatically spoof the fact that you're on the Steam Deck, so the game will run on any Linux computer, so no workaround is needed. But it's still kind of weird and stupid. Like, a developer purposefully did that. They decided in their code that they're okay with some people running Linux running their game, but not all people, even though it's the same version of Steam and it's the same version of Proton. So there's no problem, basically. And maybe they didn't want like support tickets or bug requests from people using Linux other than the Steam Deck. They maybe don't want to support their game for other platforms than the Steam Deck. But you could just let people run the game and ignore them when they report stuff. I don't know. It, it just feels weird and it's the only case that's been reported that does that. I hope it doesn't become more prevalent. I hope developers don't adopt that practice. It, it sucks. Oh, another major thing in the Linux gaming world uh, is Wine version 8.0. Uh, this version finally completes the transition of libraries to the PE executable format, which means that it opens the road for supporting copy protection on, on binaries. It opens the road for running 32-bit applications on 64-bit systems through Wine. And it also opens the way for x86 applications running on ARM, which means that if they advance correctly with those developments, we could maybe run Steam games written for Windows, but on Linux through Proton, on ARM devices. For example, on an M1 or M2 MacBook. Imagine that! Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be great! Now, they also enabled a new theme by default, so Windows apps won't look as Windows 95 as they did before. They will still look more like Windows XP than Windows 11, but yeah, it's still better than the Windows 95 look. And they also updated the various graphics drivers for Vulkan and DirectX, uh, major performance improvements in there. Of course, those will probably not be applied to most of you because in Proton, I don't think Valve uses the graphics driver that Wine uh, uh, that wine packs. I think they replaced them with DXVK and VKD3D, so I don't think they run DirectX games using the, the version that wine ships. They have their own engine to run DirectX games, which is not DXVK and VKD3D, so that will only help if you use, for example, bottles with wine or Lutris with wine. Uh, it's still nice, but it's not going to affect everyone. MPEG-1 audio decoders are also implemented, and the Media Foundation libraries, those things that let you run video cutscenes or some audio inside of games, have also been improved a lot. And finally, they also worked on controller support. Uh, you can now hot plug them a lot more easily. Uh, they added support for driving wheels, for joysticks, for rumble on a ton of controllers, for DualShock and DualSense controllers. That's been much improved and a lot more. And all included apps with Wine, like the Wine CFG or the Wine Regedit, uh, the registry editor for, for Wine, also support theming and high DPI scaling, which is also very cool. And they also added a lot of improvements to various libraries and services that, that Wine uses. So it's going to be the base for Proton 8, there's no doubt about that, uh, and it will bring all these improvements to everyone and every game, but I'm also sure that stuff like Lutris, Heroic, and, uh, and bottles will make use of that new wine version to 
improve how games and applications run, which is always a great thing. But I'm super excited for the ability to run x86 apps on ARM, because if it can open the doors to Linux gaming on x86 CPUs, it's going to be huge. Imagine, you could create a handheld running an ARM CPU with tons of battery life, a relatively good graphics chip, in a small form factor, less cooling, and run Steam games on it, even those that have been developed for x86. I really hope that they manage to get that working, because that would be really insane. And to complete this podcast and this uh, swath of gaming news, we have a new version of DXVK, the DirectX translation layer, which is basically translating uh, DirectX uh, instructions into Vulkan for Linux. And this new release adds the first basic support for HDR. But for now, it's only for game scope, which means it will only run on SteamOS, so the Steam Deck, or on Holo ISO, uh, if you use that. But it's still a very good first step, and honestly, looking at how fast they can advance on those developments, I would be surprised if everyone wouldn't benefit from that really soon. We also get a better shader compilation, which means that when you load in a new area in a game, you should see a lot less stutters as well, something that's been a bit of a problem with DXVK. Uh, basically, the shaders are either pre-compiled, if you enable uh, that option in Steam, but if you run your game outside of Steam, you don't have that option. So when you start the game, every time you enter a new level or a new area, you could see some very massive stutters with big frame drops because the game had to compile the shaders for this area. Once that was done, the framework became really smooth and it worked really well, but you still had that really weird period that could last for a few seconds, up to 30 seconds or a minute if you're running on a poor potato computer that doesn't have the horsepower to do that fast. So it's good to see that reduced. It's still going to be there, but it should be less noticeable. So this new version should also land in Proton really soon. Everyone will benefit from these improvements, whether you run uh, the Steam Deck or anything else. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really insane how great it is to be a Linux gamer these days, because we can now do stuff that Windows games cannot do. We can fix bugs in the game. We can fix performance issues for certain games in Proton, without waiting for the developer to do it, we might be able to run x86 games on ARM, which is something that Windows struggles to do itself. We have so many things that make gaming really great. The only really big problem now is anti-cheat, which hasn't been solved yet. But yeah, I'm really confident that in the end, Linux is going to be a better gaming platform than Windows all over. You're going to get so many more utilities and tools that it's just going to make more sense to run a gaming computer with SteamOS than with Windows. And this concludes this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And first, I want to thank everyone for the support. The last episode got more than 1,300 listens on all platforms combined. Uh, most of them are from the RSS feed and the Castopod website, which, by the way, lets you comment under the podcast if you have uh, feedback or stuff that you might want me to add to the podcast or various sources that you want to link to. Or if you just want to discuss a certain topic, you can head to podcast.thelinuxexp.com and leave a comment there if you have any kind of Fediverse account. That's really cool. Uh, Spotify is a distant second in terms of views and Apple Podcast is like way down the line. Uh, I don't think many of you use it. But yeah, the podcast is now available very widely and it's been working really well. So thank you all for the support and don't hesitate to let me know what you would want me to change. Now, in the meantime, thanks for listening. Please consider looking at the various links for my Patreon or various social accounts in the comments. You can also check out all my Linux-related videos on my YouTube channel or on Peertube. 
And that's about it. So thanks for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.